we're talking about here in this series, Start Dreaming Again. We're in the story of Joseph, and it's been just an exciting adventure. Um, but I thought it would be important to share with you a dream that I had um, not many years ago, about a, a little over a decade ago. A dream I had, and many of you know this, it was of being an environmental scientist. And as you can see, how that worked out. Well, I had a dream of being an environmental scientist. I went to the University of Maryland, was actually doing environmental research there, but part of uh, the degree I was pursuing, a master's degree in environmental and marine science, was that you had to write a really, really, really long bookish type paper called a thesis. If anybody has entered a master's or even a doctorate program, you know what that's like, lots and lots of research and whatnot. Well, I was writing this thesis, and three days before it was due, three days before it was due, a time before the clouds, when you would like save things and they would be like wherever that stuff is saved, um, this appeared on my screen, known as the blue screen of death. If your Windows use, or yeah, this, this is a Mac though. Um, but Windows has their own version, or like the little, like, what is it, the hourglass as it used to be, like, you know, about a decade ago, or the little beach ball just keeps rolling, right, round and around and around. And I reset the computer multiple times, and lo and behold, was able to load it back up. Well, my document could not be found. My thesis, I had failed to save it to any other outside source. That was my fault. Um, and I remember just that feeling in my stomach as I stared at that screen time and time again. And I went to like click on like the recent documents, all that kind of stuff. Nothing, nothing worked. I clicked on a document, it would not open. I clicked on something. I like, I cried. I cried right there at my, at at my desk. I was like, I'm going to have to start over. I have to write all this over, write all, all this again. Well, fortunately, I had a friend who was pretty computer savvy. Y'all need to get a friend like that. Um, but I had a friend who was computer savvy, and we were able to recover an older version. Um, so I lost two days of edits, not two years of writing. So praise God for that. But, um, but anyway, just thinking about this, it, it's a scary thing to think of starting over, Right? It's a really scary thing to think of starting over. Maybe you've had something similar happen in the computer realm of things, um, but maybe it's been in a different area, maybe in an area of life. So I'm going to ask the question, uh, in what area of life are you currently starting over? Are you currently starting over or maybe need to start over? A couple of ideas, if you just rack your brain a little. Maybe it's a relationship to start over in, in a family relationship or someone you're close to. Maybe you've been married before, and, and it's about starting over, and what does that life look like? Maybe it's a dream of a job you've had, but it didn't end the way that you thought it would. Maybe you got laid off, or it just wasn't what you thought, and you're starting over in the, in the job or vocation realm. Maybe it was a degree that you were pursuing, uh, but you just couldn't hold the grades and you had to transfer schools or change majors. Maybe it's a relationship with your kids, starting over in, or a relationship with a parent. Or maybe you just moved and you're starting over in a new phase of life or a, a place of life. And when we think about those things, um, some of those things, we look back and some of those start overs, they're completely on you. 
as far as the reason. Like, you know, you didn't do a good job at work and they fired you. Or, hey, you didn't pull the grades, you were out partying, you know. Uh, some, though, are completely someone else's fault, right? Somebody did something to you or acted a certain way. And sometimes it's partly your fault and partly their fault. But, of course, we know when we tell the story, probably about 90% of the time, it's mostly their fault, right? If we're really honest, it's their fault. They did it, right? That's what happened. But you know what? When you think about those things that we've been through when we're starting over and we reflect back on the past, you know what's the common denominator to your mistakes, to your and my mistakes? It's you! <laughs> You're the common denominator to all your mistakes. I'm the common denominator to all my mistakes. And, and when that goes, when, that, when we begin to start over, we have to ask the question, you know, when will I learn? What will I learn? Looking back, like, is this just going to repeat itself over and over again? So the question we ask today is, when your dreams crash down, how do you start over well? How do you start over well? How do you allow God to teach you through the, those previous starts? Well, today we're going to talk about starting over, and I think it's necessary in dreams, also in a life of faith, and maybe that's for you. Maybe you, it's been a while since you've been to church, or maybe it's been a while since you've been thinking about what is it that I actually believe. Or maybe you've, you've stepped away from God. God continues to pursue you, but you've stepped away, and it's a time of starting over in your life of faith. And thankfully, thankfully, we have a God who is a God of starting over, a God who doesn't throw anybody out, doesn't turn his back and run the other way, but rather he recycles, he restores, he brings resurrection but, but the kind of starting over we're going to talk about today is the kind that's more of a, of a God starting over. Not starting over to escape or turn our backs away, but rather starting over to face. To face. To face those things. And we see exactly this, where we pick up in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament in our series. And um, in your programs, you can follow along in the scripture. We're also going to have it on the screen for you as well as uh, if you're of the note-taking type. And those of you guys online, that's also found on our website. You can just download that real quick. So um, what we're going to look at today, I want to kind of take the focus off of Joseph, though, um, just for a couple minutes and looked at his brother Judah, his brother Judah, kind of start us off. So, so the kind of Cliff Notes version of the story, Joseph, he's one of these, these 12 brothers, and the oldest is Judah of those 12 brothers. And this guy named Judah, if we were rewinding the story back to our first week, we were unpacking this, um, he was the one that proposed to sell Joseph to slavery. So everybody was, all the brothers are jealous of Joseph. He's treated better by his dad. He's kind of the favorite. And he has this coat, many colors, amazing technicolor dream coat, if you're of that persuasion. And, and so what happens is they get jealous. They, he comes out to them one day, and he throw, they throw him in a well, and then there's this caravan going by, and they're like, boom. Judah's like, yes, why kill him? Sell him, right? You thought about that about your siblings. Why kill him? Just sell him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And that's this guy. He's kind of mean. <laughs> He's not what you would say you would want to be best friends with. And then there's this really, really weird story we're not going to read today, but it's in Genesis chapter 38. I'm not going to go into detail about that. It's kind of funky. Check it out on your own. It, it basically shares how Judah has a kid with his son's wife. It's really, really bizarre. But at the end of that story, get this. There's this, all these weird things that happen in that. But get this. He comes to a realization. 
And he says these words, he says these words to his, his son who had passed away, to his wife that he winds up having a kid with. He says that you were the righteous one, Tamar. You were the righteous one. That he was doing all these things, these bad things behind the scenes to try to get his way. But he wound up confessing, confessing and sharing that he had been the wrong one. And this is kind of a side note, but ironically, ironically, the son from that relationship named Perez, one of the twins who was born to Tamar and, and Judah, he became an ancestor of King David and eventually of Jesus. Think, think about that for a second. Such a messed up story, like crazy town, right? Winds up being this, this ancestor to King David and later Jesus. God uses everything. God uses all of it, all the, the crazy, the messed up, the hideous. Like God uses it. He doesn't cause it to happen, but he makes it into the beautiful things that we were just singing about. So fast forward, though, from let's go to back to the caravan comes. Joseph gets sold away. The brothers go home. They lie to their, their father that, oh, and a wild animal killed Joseph. Oh, we're so, so sad, right? Uh, their father, he takes that very to heart. Well, fast forward 22 years, and that's where we pick up in the story. 22 years, there's a famine that hits all of the land. And where do the brothers have to go to get food? We shared this part of the story last week. Where do they go? Egypt. Yes, they have to go to Egypt because lo and behold, Egypt had been preparing for this for seven years. They have all the Costco stocked with the toilet paper, Right? Everybody and your grandmother is going to Egypt to try to get what they need. And so, so the brothers go kind of hesitantly. We're thinking maybe they're thinking we might run into Joseph. Like we don't really want that to happen. And where do they end up? At Joseph's Costco. And Joseph is the one out front checking the cards. So it's just really kind of, you know, that part really didn't happen. But he's out there. He's out there and he meets them in the road. And Joseph, we talked about last week, Joseph recognizes them. He sees them as his brothers. They don't recognize him. And, and, and Joseph, Joseph does something that's unspeakable, that's unheard of, and he forgives his brothers. He forgives them. Not because they deserved it, not because they did anything to earn back his trust, but he forgives them. Forgiveness is about us, not the person we're forgiving. But he tests them. He tests them to see what had happened in the meantime of those 22 years while they had been gone. And what does he do? He, they, he sends them back, all the way back to their father, to journey back, to bring back the one brother that they had not brought. And his name was Benjamin. See, Benjamin kind of assumed the place of the favored son after Joseph repeatedly died. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Anybody? Anybody like Lord of the Rings? It's kind of like the precious. Yeah? The precious. Benjamin is the... Yeah, y'all going to have night... Some, some Lord of the Rings people are going to have... Not, or not Lord of the Rings people are going to have nightmares from that. But, but this is Gollum. So known as he calls himself the precious. Well, Benjamin in the story is the precious. So Judah is the one, though. When they go back to their father, when they go back to their father, he has to beg and plead dad to let the precious go with them back to Egypt so that way they can take care of this whole situation because not only do they want some more food they were sent back with food but their other brother Simeon he's put in prison and in order to get him back it's this whole kind of messed up test and we talked about how trauma does that to us 
makes us respond sometimes in crazy ways. Well, the story picks up in chapter 43. We're going to start in verses 8 to 10 in this conversation that Judah has with his father, with Jacob, also known as Israel. So the story goes, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Right? We need to eat, Dad. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So just looking there, this Judah, the one who had sold his brother into slavery, the one who then picked up in this weird story that he's trying to do like what he wants to do and not the right thing to do when his son passes away. Who is this guy who puts his life at stake, right? Puts his life at stake for someone else? See, Jacob, Jacob's reply is sure. Yes, you can take him. And Jacob is the dad, and he's very smart, of course. And he t tells him, he says, well, you need to take some amends back with you too. Because not only did the boys come back with their sacks full of food, but also with the money that they had brought to pay for it. So they're thinking like this was maybe a setup or a mess up. Like we're not supposed to have this. And Jacob's like, when you go back, like you want to be on good terms, right? You don't want any bad things to happen. The brothers are afraid, and they assume that it was a mistake that they had been sent back with their money. They're walking, when they go back, they're walking into a very, very precarious situation. But when they get there, with the precious in tow, they're treated to dinner. They're treated to dinner in Joseph's house. And, of course, that other brother, Simeon, who was locked away in prison, he was brought out of jail. And imagine eight months of time have passed since he was put in jail. And I, I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, poor Simeon, right? He's been waiting there the whole time. Like, like come on, are they coming back? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And do you think when he was let out, do you think he probably had a word with his brothers, right? Y'all forgot about me? What's with that? Why didn't you come a little bit sooner? This was not comfortable. Well, they have dinner. Benjamin's treated kind of above everybody else, given even more food than everybody else. Well, the next morning... Joseph slips a cup, a very expensive silver cup, into the precious sack, into Benjamin's sack. And lo and behold, one of the servants of the household finds it. Well, it's obvious, right? Benjamin had stolen the cup, or at least that's what Joseph is trying to, to show here. Well, there's a little plot, there's a twist here involved. And then the story picks up in verse uh, 16 of chapter 44. What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. This is after the cup is found. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves are the one who was found to have the cup. See, Joseph, Joseph's smart. He's testing them. He's seeing what that time and, and what that process has really done. But in response to what Judah has to say, this very, very kind of a guilty statement here. Imagine, he knows, Judah knows that something was planted. He knows Benjamin didn't steal this cup. But still, he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Like there's something going on inside Judah that's arising here. But Joseph responds by giving them a way out. He gives them another test. 
He says, well, then only the guilty one will stay and become the slave. Only Benjamin, it will stay. I'll send you all back. But since Benjamin stole this cup, it's obvious, right? He is going to have to stay. The rest can go. And I imagine the rest of the brothers at this point, they probably would have bolted. <laughs> It'd be like, okay, one out of like, what, now we're down to 11. One out of 11 ain't bad. We'll just kind of leave Benjamin behind. We don't like him anyway. Remember, he kind of took the place of Joseph as the favored one. But Judah says otherwise. He responds to Joseph in verse 33. Now then, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Think about that. As my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. He says, let me stay. Put me in his place. Keep me instead of him. His old way of relating 22 years ago, would have been about himself. He would have been right there to bolt from the scene of the crime. But instead, he desires to step in and take punishment for another. And in that, he frees the rest of them. You get a little precursor here? A precursor of the story that would come thousands of years later of Jesus? That this story is unfolding? He's replacing himself. He's putting himself in that place of others. But we see in that, that Judas, as he's speaking that, we see those seeds of repentance. Those that repentance. He knows what he has done wrong, but he wants to turn around from it. And he wants to start over. He wants to start over to make sure that next time is not like last time. And I think we can learn from this part of the story First, a couple of principles in that. When we are starting over, to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen again, the first thing we have to do, like Judah, is to own it. We have to own our part in the story. Own your part of the disaster, whether it's professional, romantic, relational, academic, whatever it might be. Because it's always the other person, right? But what about you? What about you, you know? You and I don't want to, we don't want to tell a story saying I screwed up. It's really hard to do. We'd rather tell a story about how unfair they were and how uh, dishonest they were. And we can say the words like, they never did blank, they never blank, blank, right? But let me put it here, guys. If you, you can blame your way into the future, but that sets it up for a repeat performance. That's what happens. See, when we own our part of the past, you know what happens? It drops the temperature of your emotions. And as temperature drops, you gain clarity to see what's right, to see what's wrong, to make those adjustments. And that's what confession is about. That's what confession is about. As Judah confesses and says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt, he's not talking about a cup here. He's talking about years of sin, years of wrongdoing, about what he had done 22 years ago. And I kind of think of it like this. Sin is kind of like a broken sewer pipe. Those of you that are on um, like our, our finance and facilities meeting, you know we had a little project this past week at the Parsonage. Yeah, brand new sewer line. I don't know if you've had a house that have had that done, but it stinks, right? But the thing is, around here, like the sewer lines were all built back in the 50s, and they made them with certain materials. Well, that, those materials, they kind of corrode after time, and they just start disintegrating. And the thing is, 
Sooner or later, it's going to come to the surface and you're going to have to do something about it. Sooner or later. That's what sin happens. And usually it's not worse sooner, it's worse later. That's when you start having the, we didn't have this fortunately, but that's when you have the sinkholes and, and things start falling apart and getting really, really, really disgusting. See, confession and repentance are part of living in an upper story, that upper story. They're what follow forgiveness towards restoration. But we have to ask the question, though, what is confession, right? Some of us come from different religious backgrounds, church backgrounds, in that we've been taught different things in that, well, confession is revealing the exact nature of our sins. It's revealing the exact nature of our sins, of course, to God, but dare I say there's a second piece. It's also to others. See, a lot of times we put down the Catholics on this. We put down those that come from Roman Catholic tradition where they believe to go, they have to go to confession to a priest in order to be absolved of their sins and whatnot. And I'm not saying that we need to do that by any means. But there is power behind confessing to another person. There's power. Why? Sin grows in isolation. Sin grows in isolation. And don't be surprised if, if sin continues to reign in that isolation. And that's exactly why if you're trying to get sober, you can't get sober alone. If you could, we'd all be sober, right? If you could just do it by yourself and say, okay, I'm good. And, but we don't. We need others. We need others. And that's why we're a part of this. That's why we're a part of church. We need one another. Iron sharpens iron. We need one another. Even the people you don't like, you know, I'm not saying you need to be buddy-buddy with everybody, but we need each other. And, and that's why we, we gather here. That's why we make it a point to worship together, to be a part of, of Bible studies and table groups and serving teams. We need each other because if you're just here for a preacher, I have some news for you. There's better ones out there that you can just stream from your phone if that's what you're here for. We need each other. That's what church is about. If you don't get this, then think about one of your favorite animals in the wild. One of mine is one of the antelope out in Africa. Well, if you have ever studied or heard or watched National Geographic, you know that what are the ones that the, the tigers and the lions go after? The ones that are by themselves, picked off like that, right? One at a time at a time. The one with the limp that's by itself is lunch. It's the same way for us. When we are by ourselves in isolation, that's the worst place that we can be. We need one another, not just for that support and community, but also for the context of confession. And repentance. Repentance means to change one's way. Not only do we confess, but we don't just say, hey, I'm sorry and I did this. But we turn around. We abandon the old to pursue the new. That's what it's about. See, Judah, Judah doesn't do what he's always done. He confesses. Instead, he confesses, and then he goes even further, and he repents. And you know what happens because of that? Chapter 45 is what happens. Starting in verse 1, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Wow, right? For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Principle number two, claim your identity. Claim your identity. Joseph does this quite literally, which is what brings about that reconciliation between him and his brothers. Brings about freedom. He doesn't have to hide anymore. See, the word reconciliation is to make whole once again. And like you said, that doesn't necessitate to say that I don't forgive somebody unless there is reconciliation. Your hope is that reconciliation would happen, but that doesn't mean that you stop forgiving. Claim your identity to ask the question, who have you become? Who are you? Who are you? Be honest. Who have you become? What kind of person are you becoming? Who are you really? See, God has a big role in that. Because the world will give you a lot of fake IDs. They'll tell you to identify in, by certain characteristics in certain ways. Try to, even maybe people in your life will speak different things into you and tell you that you need to be something that you are definitely not. And you have a choice to listen to what other people think you are and let them define you and let them define what your future will hold especially people that don't have your best interests in mind, by the way, Uh, maybe are served by their own motivations, or you have a choice to look at God for the identity he has bestowed on you and who he has created you to be. And this isn't a self-esteem thing. is isn't saying, oh, well, now all of a sudden you're so great and you're so wonderful, but this is a God-esteem thing. Who has he created you to be? Are you a child of his? Number one, above anything else, Is that how you identify? Instead of the things you do or what you like or don't like or what you're supposed to be. um, You know, if identity is only about what you do and not who you are, there will come a point in your life that what you do will fall away. There will be a time that you will retire. There will be a time that you will be unable to do a sport or activity that you name and call yourself. There will be someone in your life When your whole identity is wrapped up in someone else, there will be a time when that someone in your life will pass. Who are you? Are you a child of God? Do you see that identity? What if if even those of us that that may be uh, single, you know, and trying to find someone, and there's always like, I want to find someone to complete me. And and, uh, Pastor Jeff here, he's a counselor. He'll tell you that's a bunch of baloney. Like, healthy relationships, healthy marriages do not result from people saying, ah, you complete me, right? That's just, that's just a mess there. But what if finding the right person this time is not about finding and more about becoming? Becoming the person whom you're looking for is looking for. And chances are when you see them, you'll find them. You'll recognize them. See, it's about claiming your identity first, number one, as God's. And then the story continues in verse 16. When the news, this news that was just shared, reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I'll give you 
get this, the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You're also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt. This is the old-fashioned moving trucks. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father to come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. And so what do they do? Joseph's identity is claimed, and because of that, they travel back. They all go back to the father with the, with the mindset, with, with the mindset of restoration here. And when they meet their father, Jacob, what happens? He is overjoyed. They share with him the news that Joseph is alive. And not only that, but he's in charge. That dream that he had dreamed years and years ago has come to fruition. But in the midst of it, it's not a Joseph looking down on them, but it's about a Joseph coming to, and saving them. He's overjoyed. And not only that, but what's interesting is that God confirms all of this to Jacob in a dream. In verse 46, and God spoke, or chapter 46, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Last principle here is that when we're starting over, we have to live in a new place. Live in a new place. What he's not saying is that we literally move to Egypt. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that that we need to move on. Release the past. Learn from it, of course. It doesn't go to waste, but release it. Don't live there. You can't live in the past. It's not a good place to be. And it's interesting that up until now in this story, Egypt has been a place of exile, has been a place of slavery. Remember back to the beginning, it's a place that you don't want to go or don't want to be, but now that's changed. And you want to know why? Because the world has changed. The world has changed. I think that's why God had to affirm it to Jacob, to not only okay it, but to say the words, I will be with you there. Even in this this place, this unknown territory, God doesn't promise it will be easy. He doesn't say anything like that. But Jacob knows that staying where they were would mean death. See, Egypt becomes that place of provision, the place of seeing God at work, even in the future chapters of this story. And I want you to think about that for a minute. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and even us as a church, you know, to to live and to embrace being in a new place? Well, I was thinking about this. I I think it's kind of like one of my favorite pastimes from like the 90s. I don't know if anybody visited this place before. Blockbuster video, right? Friday night, like you go down there and you look out what are all the titles and you find the little plastic like box that was empty because you had to go behind the desk in order to get the video, your VHS tapes. And, you know, some of our youth are like, that was so like decades ago, right? These are the old people. We're all old people now talking. But Blockbuster is such an interesting story. Did you know that in the year 2000, in the year 2000, there was a rising company that decided to have a little conversation with Blockbuster, and they flew down to Dallas, which was Blockbuster's headquarters, and they had a little conversation about uh, working together, about becoming together, because they had some new technology, some new ideas about what they were embracing. And, And you and I know that Blockbuster makes its money, you know how? On late fees. 
That's how Blockbuster made its money. It was on late fees. You didn't return your tape. Oh, okay, there you're down a couple dollars. Well, this new company instead offered what was called a subscription fee. It was a new idea, a new idea of thinking. So what happened in that discussion was that it turned really bad. The people, if you didn't realize this, from Netflix left Dallas that day, kind of throwing their hands up in the air saying, we tried, you know, we wanted to talk to Blockbuster. And several years later, didn't Netflix totally destroy and decimate Blockbuster through what they were promising with their subscriptions, first with CDs in the mail, and then when we went to streaming by acquiring that. Interesting story, huh? It's an interesting story. When we look at that, over that time, over those, that decade or so, did people's love of movies change? No. I think people watch even more movies today than they did before. No. What had not changed was the delivery of the movies. The movies had not changed. The delivery had. And I think that's the same for us as the church. Like, we live in a different day and time. And the, the past is the past. But have people's need of the good news of Jesus Christ, has that changed? Absolutely not. Has the gospel, has the good news changed? Absolutely not. But what about the receptacle? What about how it's delivered? What about the means and the, the instruments and the tools that we use and the setup and the places and the times? That all can change, right? We're in a different time because here's a riddle for you. You know what a church, a church becomes who lives in the past? A museum. You visited them. You go to Europe, there's plenty of them. You even go around here, you could find plenty of them. But also for you personally, you know what happens if you don't live in a new place when you start over? You allow the people who hurt you, the people who deceived you, the people who lied to you, the people who fired you, the, your bad habits, the people who created your chaos in childhood or in your last job, the people who hurt you from your neighborhood, your team, your school, or, and even your prior expectations, all from your past, you allow those things and those people to influence your future if you don't move. What happens is your second marriage looks like your first. You acquire the same habits, you begin medicating again, the same friends come back and your kids tell you you're just like your dad. Have you ever met someone, though, that you look at them and you develop a friendship, relationship, and then down the road you discover what they've been through? And you're like, how is that possible? Like, you're, you know, I see your family, I see your work, I see your life. And, and you ask them the question, you know, this horrific story, what, what was it? How did you get through that? Well, 99% of the time, that person will tell you, I decided. I'll tell you those words. I'll start, I decided. I decided I was not going to stay in that abusive relationship and allow myself to be physically assaulted time and time again. I decided not to stay in that sadness or that victim mentality that the world was out to get me. I decided they, they moved. They moved to a new place. And they've released that. They've released that. And for some of us, in some instances, it does require a physical move to separate from those friends who have been really, really bad influence that will drag us back. It may require throwing out some substances that you know you should not have in your house. It may require forgiveness. It may require releasing those things to God. It may require making an appointment, oh my gosh, to go to counseling, right? We talk about this. There's a 
wonderful statement that says, love your regrets because they're the best teachers. But I want to add to that, we can't live there, though. We have to live in a new place. Because I think in this story, we kind of wrap things up here, we see that starting over requires that we start with the past. We start with the past, not in the past. We're not going back there, but we're starting with it. To, to examine what, well, let me own it. Let me claim my identity even within it, but let me decide to live in a new place. Let's do that together because just as Jacob was told, that's where God is. That's where God is. But of course, one common thing in starting over is fear. Is fear. Is, is fear that what will happen? What will it be like? I don't know what this entails, but Judah owned it. Joseph lived it. And their family embraced it. And it's scary. It's scary when a dream has been dashed and when you've been through the ringer. But let God transform Egypt into a place of provision. A place where redemption can happen. A place where purpose can be established. And if we see Joseph as that reflection of God in our lives, how much more is God and how much more would God do for us? And how much, even thousands of years later, would he take his own son and send him to a cross? So when we own it, we also give ourselves grace. We live on and start over. We start with the past, but we don't end there. And that's the good news. That's the good news.